Welcome to Lemmy Works, brought to you by Leadership Education Mentoring Institute. We are inspiring parents, mentors, and communities as they embark on the journey of transformational project-based education. Hi, this is Tatiana Fallon. Hi, this is Heidi Christensen. We're so excited to be your hosts. Hey everyone, we are here today with Camille Bacoslin and Camille, oh, she is one of my favorite trainers. She is just, has this presence about her that I just really respect. And I say that about all the trainers. (laughs) I don't. Do I, Tati? I don't say that. We have have a lot of great trainers. We do. We do. But you just have this presence about you and this this calmness about you. And I just, I've I've always just admired that. And um, anyway, I, I am really excited because I've really never heard your story about how you got into homeschooling, how you found Lemmy. Can you start out today with, by just sharing that with everybody? Yeah, I'll start at the very beginning. <clears throat> a very good place to start. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, um, I don't know that my story is very unique or interesting, but this is how it all got started. Um, I, I'm a product of the public school system. I, you know, that was the thing, right? That we didn't know. My parents didn't know anything different to do. So I went to public school and I had an okay experience. I didn't, I mean, it was just what it was. I don't feel that I had any bad, bad experiences about being in public school. So I didn't have in my mind, like, man, when I have children, I am not sending them to public school, you know, because it was more like that's the expected path. Right. But then I had my first baby and she, she was maybe 24 hours old. I don't know if she was even that old yet, but I remember just sitting up in my bed at home with this newborn and looking into her little face and just marveling and thinking about, I was walking mentally in my mind through all these cool things that were gonna happen. She was gonna learn how to crawl and how to walk and how to talk. and. And I, I just kind of saw this timeline and then my my brain got to, and then she's gonna go to school. And for some weird reason, my entire being put the brakes on. It was like, <laughs> danger. <laughs> and I thought, well, that was weird. What is wrong with me? I had this just deep, feeling of like, there is no way that I can send this child off to school. And I remember talking to my husband about it. And he, you know, he said, of course, honey, you don't, you know, she's just a baby. Of course, you don't feel like you want to send her away to school. But when she's five or six, she'll be fine with it. And I, I thought, well, maybe he's right. You know, maybe that's really what I'm, it's just the whole looking at a baby thing, and I don't want to let go of this baby. But as she got a little older, and I'm talking a week down the road, I'm still like this thought is in my head. And I'm just going to say, I really feel like I was led by the spirit to do it. 
because I had, I, I even I, I had this conversation with myself, many conversations like, well, Camille, if you don't send her to public school, what the heck do you think you're gonna do? You know? And, you know, in the back of my mind, it was like, well, I know I could, I know that I could educate my children. And, but who does that? You know, so I started toying with this idea and it was maybe then two or three weeks down the road and a, a lady in our congregation that I really barely knew, I only knew her because we went to church where, where she did. Um, and she had several children and she showed up at my door one day and she, I think it was kind of a guise actually, cause she brought a little gift for the baby, but I could feel this uncomfortableness in, in her. And finally, she just kind of blurted out something about homeschooling. And I was like, what? What What are you talking about? And, and she said, well, we homeschool our children. And, and I'm like, well, what do you mean you homeschool? What does that mean? Now, we're talking the late 70s, 1978. Yeah, so <laughs> this was a lot of homeschoolers were still closeted. It wasn't a thing that people really talked about. And I know now that, that, and in fact, she, she said that God had given her this prompting to come and talk to me, but she was nervous about it. You know, what do you do when you go to an almost total stranger who's just had a baby and, and tell them about homeschooling and how they might want to do this? <laughs> I was so excited and she told me about how, yeah, there's other homeschoolers. It's not just me. I'm not the only weirdo, you know, there's other people who do this and we have conventions. And I was so excited about it that when my daughter was not yet six months old, we went to our first homeschool convention <laughs> and I'm like, I am going to find out about this. And I'm going to like, I already started collecting ideas and, you know, looking at stuff and listening to speakers. And so very early on before my oldest was even what you would call like a kindergartner, we already had talked about homeschooling and we were developing kind of our own homeschool philosophy. And of course I didn't know anything about Lemmy. I don't know if Lemmy existed in the seventies. <laughs> I don't know when they, um, anyway, so, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure Tiffany was still in high school in the 70s. So, yeah, no. <laughs> so fast forward, and, and I, I actually have nine children now. So um, fast forward, and I'm, you know, in our little community we were in, we, and, and I, I later learned two other families were homeschooling in the city that we were in. We were in a small town, actually, small town, and um I felt for a while that we were living in a glass house because the principal of the elementary school lived across the street from us. Next door to him was the principal of the middle school and the bishop of our congregation lived just a half block down the street on the same street side of the street. And he was the, um, see the elementary. Anyway, we had all three. <laughs> The elementary principal lived directly across the street from us. And so, um, and we weren't super vocal about it, but we'd had conversations with different people about how our plan was to homeschool. Well, my oldest, Alicia, she, you know, when she turned five, 
you know, old enough for kindergarten. Um, one day, this gentleman came across the street and we were just kind of chatting and he said, well, I guess you just, you definitely decided that you're going to go through with this homeschool thing. And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, I, I just, I noticed that your daughter was out playing in the middle of the day, you know, outside on the swings. We had our swing set in the front yard. And I said, yeah, we have recess, you know, and, um, <laughs> and he just, you know, tried to act kind of cool about it, but um, we had some interesting experiences just trying to be, it really felt kind of lonely being the only, it felt like the only homeschoolers really. And then eventually I was like, I got to tap into some other people. And so I set up my own little homeschool convention in the area and put up little signs and come to meet other homeschoolers. And, and um, I found out that there were other people who were having a desire to do that as well. And, um, you know, at first my, my husband, of course, is he's been very supportive all through it, but at the beginning it was like, well, I can see where we, we could homeschool, you know, probably up until she's eight or maybe 10. And then later as, you know, I indoctrinated him, <laughs> we went to more homeschool conventions, you know, and then it was like, well, 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 home, we can homeschool, you know, up until middle school. And then it was an up to high school now. What the heck? Let's just homeschool them. And so we, we homeschooled from day one, pretty much. And I considered myself a homeschooler when my daughter was just a newborn. And my path was one that was pretty organic, but also I'm going to say tainted <laughs> with, um, some of the public school mentality that I came with, you know, because I didn't know any different. And this, the only sad thing about it was that I didn't really come across any community of people who used um, Thomas Jefferson approach and um, Lemmy certainly until my second to the youngest was 12 and I'd managed to kind of limp my way through the adolescence of all the prior children, um, trying to educate them through that time. And, and Tatiana's nodding her head, you know, I see that. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Um, I actually had heard Oliver DeMille um, speak on his concepts that went into his book on a Thomas Jefferson education many times. And I enjoyed them so many times. And I took notes, copious notes, every time he would come to Southern Utah and he would speak here or there. Um, and I would come and I would listen. And so by the time he came out with the actual book and I got it, I was like, this is the same thing I had in all the notes that I'd taken in the zillion you know, times that he'd come to speak. But even with that, I didn't understand how to apply it very well. And a lot of my concern in previous years had been for my children who were not yet into a scholar phase. They weren't even in practice scholar yet. And I didn't understand the phases. So I was really grateful when they came out with the book on the phases of learning that helped me to understand application a little bit better. 
because I was sitting here trying to apply all this scholar stuff to little children. And it was very, <laughs> yeah, you can laugh at me about that. <laughs> I can laugh now at myself, but um, this particular son, my next to the youngest, I just could see that he needed, probably all my children needed something more. But at that point, um, a friend approached me that was involved in a Commonwealth school that was used that was using these projects, these lemming projects. And she would tell me about the classes that her daughter and was taking and um and she shared some of the <clears throat> problems they were having in, in their school. And so I was like, I don't know if I want to do this, but um at the same time as she shared what was going on with the projects, it piqued my interest. And so I thought, I will try this out, not having hardly a clue what it was going to be like. And still having, even after all those children, still having a little bit too much um, public school mentality as far as how to, how to really, you know, educate my children. And I'd always kind of believed and I learned I learned because my children guided me to learn um, that I needed to follow their lead and and allow them to <clears throat> get an education by following their interests and their passions. So I, I at least had come that far. And I really felt like most of the learning that we did was very organic, but there were some conveyor belt educational ideas that I really still was stuck in. And so the first time when I, I went to the Commonwealth School and my son was taking um, Shakespeare and he was taking uh, Key of Liberty. And I sat in there and I, and I remember thinking, what is this teacher doing? She's asked a question and these kids are just sitting there. They're not trying to answer the question. You know? And I just, I was very concerned. I didn't understand what was going on. And of course, as I started to learn more of the principles that were used and the, the environments of learning, you know, that they were, um, they were allowing for uncomfortable silence when they asked questions because it wasn't a rhetorical question. It was something that, that invited thinking. And so that was kind of my introduction to um, leadership education and Lemmy. And by the time my son had been going for probably a month, which would just have been four classes, he was so lit up and he was around he was around other young people who were of like mind in the kind of education that they wanted. And I was surrounded by, by other parents who were like-minded in the kind of education that they really wanted for their children. And it has just been a, a complete blessing from there on, you know, I, my first experience in my homeschool um, community there was uh, with, with um, the Lemmy projects was just kind of cleaning things after everybody was done. You know, that was the way I was serving in our Commonwealth school. And then 
um, I wanted to do more. And they asked if I would mentor a class and that freaked me out. And, but, and I kept thinking, maybe I could do that. I, I really wanted to do Key of Liberty, but but they're like, no, we, we we need someone to mentor a pyramid project. I'm like, what the heck is a pyramid project? <laughs> and um, so, you know, they had a hard time explaining that to me. Um, but so I, you know, going to training was really important for me at that point because I needed to learn what this project was, <laughs> you know, and the, the reason for it and, and what these scholars were going to be doing in this class. And I, and I thought, wow, what a cool way to get kids, not just learning science or not, or not just learning uh, how to do math, but to give them, you know, to step back and give them a bigger picture of how this is, a, this is a whole holistic, I'm going to say, because it's a whole picture of how are we thinking about things around us? how to think like a scientist and the the habits that we can develop the things we can develop and the skills we can develop to to make ourselves good scientists and and to become mathematicians you know and to have a good mindset about math and the purpose of math so um even though i felt inadequate as many new mentors do i managed to make it through that first year with zeal, <laughs> with much zeal, probably a lot of mistakes, but um, I had I had 12 scholars in that class, six girls and six boys. And they were an interesting bunch. It was a great um, initiation for me as a mentor. And I developed such a love for Pyramid Project, even through years where the project was kind of yanked around. It was changed a lot. I, I dare say, Tati, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Pyramid has morphed more times than any of the other projects. And so that's been a little bit of a frustration to me, but I see how every one of those changes was necessary in that project. Have I gone way off on the, I we started with, why did you start homeschooling? Oh, you're totally, you're totally fine. Um, you're just, it's been flowing awesome. It's been awesome to see all like connect all, make all the connections and stuff. But while you were talking about Pyramid Project, I did have this epiphany about, you know, how you're saying you want them to help them to teach like a scientist. I recently listened to, I don't know, it was like a YouTube video slash podcast with Hugh Ross. I don't know if you know who Hugh Ross is. He's a, He's a scientist um, that is very Christian based and he's um, he's kind of hated and loved at the same time in the, the world of science because he's he can be kind of controversial. But anyways, he was he was talking about climate change and they were like, well, you have no grounds to talk about climate change because you're not, you know, a climate change scientist. You're a physicist. So why are you talking about climate change as, as a physicist, like stay in your lane? And, and so I was listening to that and he's like, well, yes, I'm not a climate, I'm not a climate scientist, but I am a scientist and I know how to think like a scientist. So if I can see the data and see the, see all of the information, I can conclude similar things as any climate scientist could as well. Right. So I, it was just kind of interesting, like, in, I feel like 
in the conveyor belt way of doing science, it's more like, okay, you are an earth science, you're a climate science, you're biology, you're, you know, um, this, and then they just hyper-specialize, which I think to some extent is there's, it's necessary because there's so much complex, minute, knowledge specific things in each one of those categories but on the flip side like they're not really thinking scientifically if you're just only focused in one area of of knowledge and so i thought that was just a cool epiphany i have is like you know pyramid projects trying to actually like lay a foundation of let's think like scientists before we even engage in scientific knowledge yes that's absolutely right and I remember, um, in fact, I'm sure you, you'll you recognize this because um, Tiffany Earle, who actually was the one that developed, the, like she, she developed the pyramid project, right? Um, I remember her saying many times, everything is everything. Everything is connected. And when we try to, and of course, out of necessity, we categorize, we compartmentalize, it helps us in some ways, but we, we need to be able to do that and still see the connection, the interconnectedness of everything. And um, as you were talking, and you said that this this person that was talking to this Ross person. Yeah, Hugh, this, Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross, Hugh Ross was saying, well, you know, you're not a climate change scientist, you're a physicist. But that reminded me of this really great book. So I'm just gonna recommend a book here, um, <laughs> which is a new one I put on our pyramid project um, book list. It's called Believing is Seeing. And it's written by a physicist, and he explains how science actually. I just read this book last. You can read it last year. Oh my gosh, yeah. such a great book, such a cool so, book. Like he yeah. was an atheist, and then he he realized how you really need faith in order to be a scientist, you know. Um, and he 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 does not lack credentials, and you know when you read the book, as you know, Tatiana, you know if you read the book. You see how he just very methodically and scientifically takes you through um, the concept. So anyway. Yeah. Anyway. And then like the deeper level physics, which is so complex, but like faith plays an integral part into physics. It's not something that I pretend to understand. So it's not something I feel like I can talk yeah. about, but there's like this connection, you know, like Schrodinger's cat, like in the box, like, you know, like that whole concept of faith and, seeing the particles shift and change and yeah there's a lot there's a lot in physicists physics yeah. especially that has to do with faith but yeah. but i just think it was kind of cool like you, you were talking about the pyramid project is if we lay this foundation whether my child goes on to pursue like a nursing path or you know or a mechanical engineering or a you know all those different my you know specific fields they still need the essential tools to think like a scientist there's there's rules there's laws and one of the things that jordan peterson always says is like we have all these scientists but ha most of them actually aren't scientists because they don't actually follow the rules of scientific thinking they yeah. just say they're scientists because they have a degree in science but they actually don't even know how to create logical reasoning or scientific method studies or any of those things you know like yeah. they're really just you know doing research and then saying that it's science. <laughs> it's been amazing to me as I've mentored various um, pyramid project classes, you know, mentoring these scholars, um, the things that light their fire, 
And I mean, there's things that I'm like, I'm not particularly interested in that, but this is something I love about all the projects, all the Lemmy projects is we give them, we give them a broad base and we give them the tools to be able to go out and explore and find what their thing is. What are they passionate and interested in looking into further? And I have seen some things that have just blown me away. Um, just a few years ago, was it two or three years ago, I had a scholar in a pyramid class that, um, you know, we, we, we ask them to set math goals. So we don't tell them what those goals should be, but we ask them to set goals um, to do their Newtonian math or, you know, the, how shall I describe it? <laughs> Pencil paper math, you know, the, the math skills, the functions, how to learn the functions and things like that. So, um, but they get to decide what, you know, what their math lesson looks like. You know, it might be a, a textbook, it might be an online program like Khan Academy or something or, or something else, you know, they might be reading a book about math concepts. And so they get to decide what a math lesson, look, what that looks like for them. You know, is my math lesson a bunch of, you know, maybe it's three rows of problems or, or maybe it's I'm spending 45 minutes or so many pages or whatever, you know, but this one scholar, I, it came out of nowhere. I mean, we actually, there's, there's um, one of the documents that we can use um, possibly in second semester is a fragment out of Euclid's elements. Okay, so basically Euclid was taking very basic concepts and trying to define what they were so that we have a clearer language for this math, right? So even, even what is a, what is a point? What is a line? So he's defining that. And as we studied another book, piece by piece through that semester, we were doing a beginner's guide to constructing the universe. And we were taking each one of those. It takes a number like number one, number two, it, it talks about the symbolism and all of that. And they learn a lot of geometric skills if you follow it through. And we were doing, we were playing around in class with um, a lot of um, using a compass and a straight edge. And we just did all kinds of things. And this was something that fascinated him. I was not expecting any of the scholars to take that further, but it gives them, they get a taste of something and they get to decide if it's something they actually want to chew on. And this scholar wanted to chew on it big time. So what he chose for his math study that year was Euclid's elements. Blew me away blew me away. And we have them actually design their own math exam for the end of first semester. And then we actually give it to them again at the end of second semester, but they don't know they're going to get the same exam. It's just a way of us helping them to see how far they've come in being able to, you know, to do the things that they were setting out to do. Well, when he designed his test, it was not easy. I, I looked at it and I thought, I, I don't think I could do this. I mean, they're not being graded on it per se, but they just need to do the best they can under their circumstances, right? That's what we. That's the only thing that we ask. We don't give them A's and B's and stuff like that, right? 
And, but just the fact that he was so freaking excited about studying Euclid's elements and understanding them just blew me away. And so many other things that, that the scholars came up with that year, you know, it's just really, well, they always are going to surprise you, right? Yeah, I've tried to read that so a couple of times. Definitely insanely difficult. <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, that's college level. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I, I just also think it's beautiful because I think there's so much to be said about just like not everybody's genius is going to be, um, you know, geometric points and, and understanding those things, right? So like one of my biggest pet peeves that people come to me and they'll say, well, you know, Lemmy isn't a good enough curriculum because, you know, we only do like one semester on the Civil War and you don't actually go that far into civil rights and you don't really spend enough time on the war or you don't really cover like the nuances of the Shakespearean language or like they're like, they're like, nitpick the academic portion of it and what I was just like you'd completely miss the goal of the whole entire thing you're completely missing it you can't assume that you can be everyone's everything right you can't assume that you you can offer a child every piece of knowledge that they need to have to to engage on their mission in life like that's that's absurd and it also yeah. is unfair it's totally unfair because then what's the joy in the journey of discovering your passions and what you love and what you like. Right. So it's like, no, this is literally like, I've had people tell me like Kivalry needs to be like a two year project because they really don't go into detail about the constitution that well. And I was like, no, for the kids who want it and the kids who really, really want it, they're going to get it. They're going to be a fire lit inside of them and they're going to go study Locke and Hume and Blackstone. They're going to go, do all those intense things they're you know because th they want it they want it and they're going to put the passion in to get it but the kids who don't want it you know like my my sister she's a beautiful musician she doesn't want that that's not what she wants to do right but she has a skill set she knows her rights and she can fight for her freedom right so that's the basic thing you know so it's like not everybody's going to take down this path but there are key elements everyone needs to have you know there's a key yeah. foundation that pyramid offers that the students need whether they choose to go on, go with more in depth into the sciences, that's, you know, obviously their choice. Yeah, exactly. Well, I loved the way um, you expressed it in your little video that we have on the Lemieux website, um, where, you, you know, you're walking down this path. Here's this river. Um, you know, we that mindset that is very common in a conveyor belt educational system that we're going to fill your young mind with all this knowledge. Well, they're fooling themselves in the first place if they think that they're gonna actually be able to put, just like transfer this knowledge just because you tell someone something and maybe even tell them how important it is to them that they're gonna care about it, that they're gonna remember it, that it's gonna be important to them for the rest of their life. No, thank you. But I love, I, I hope everybody watches that little video that that you made because that was just illustrated so beautifully. You know, that child gets to explore how far into the river they're gonna go and they're gonna fill their pitcher where they want it. They're gonna collect the water where they want it. And it's just such a cool thing to watch. I think the first lesson I learned in that and I had to keep relearning it with all of my kids. That's probably why my 
why God gave me nine children because I needed so many lessons to just keep relearning, you know. Um, but I remember with my, um, let's see, she was number four, my da a daughter, um, she just really got into horses. And it was like horses, everything was horses. She just was horse crazy. And so when we'd go to the library, everything was horses, books about horses. And I, you know, mom here that was still stuck in many ways on the conveyor belt. <laughs> I remember going, well, that's fine. You can get the horsey books, but look over here. Is this a cool book about this? I tried to get her to get that quote, broader education. You know, I was going to guide her to these other books. And she, I mean, she liked some of those books, but she really stuck with the horse books. And I remember one day we were driving along in the car and from the back seat, she said, mom, did you know such and such about, you know, about the human body or something? And then she said something about something. They were all these, and I'm like, where did you learn this stuff? Cause I didn't even know most of it. And she was telling me stuff about the history of animals in North America and all this stuff. And I said, where did you read this? Where did you learn this? And she said, from my horse books, from her horse books. Oh my gosh. She'd been reading horse books and in the course of learning about the thing that she loved the most right then, she was learning about history. She was learning about science. She was learning about biology. She was learning anatomy. I mean, it blew me away. She was six, just so you know. And she's telling me all this stuff, a lot of stuff I didn't know, some that I didn't like, but I don't remember us having a homeschool lesson about that, you know, <laughs> but she knew it. Why? because she was allowed to explore the water where she wanted to fill her pitcher, <laughs> where she wanted to go. So, We're interrupting this broadcast to remind you to share and subscribe. Also, be sure and check out our website at lemmymentortraining.com. I'm glad you liked that video. It was I was actually, I, one part I left out of it I, I wanted more to talk about was there's a, I didn't know how to do it visually, so I just left it out, but there's, you know, that famous thing where Socrates, that young man comes to Socrates and says, he shoves his head in the river and mm -hmm. like, till he can't breathe. And then he almost drowns and he pulls his head back out of the river and says, come back to me when you wanted to learn as bad as you wanted to breathe. And then I will teach you or I will, I will mentor you. And like, I, I didn't put that in because I, I couldn't figure out how to artistically show that. But, um, but that's one of the things is like, that's the goal is to get them to want to know something as bad as they want to be, you know? And then when we do that, then, then they do gain so much cause they want it. They want it, you know, like, and then another thing that's like not in that video too, that is, I think a, a crucial part is it like, I think like for, so Lucas, my little son, he's the one playing in the water. He, I don't know. I don't know if it's because of his personality or because he's a COVID baby, but he's been my hardest kid to try new things. Like, so we literally would go to the river probably once or twice a week in the summertime. And it was like pulling his hair out to get him to even touch the water. Like, to like put his feet in the water, to like even like go play in, like he would just sit on the beach and throw rocks at the water, like forever, forever. 
And so I was just like, man, what the heck? Do I just need you know, like throw the kid in and let him drown? Like, <laughs> it was weird to me because like my three other kids have never, have always just loved playing in water. They've always just loved swimming. Like they're little water bugs. They just, they're so happy just going out and exploring and having fun and doing those things. And so like, but I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm not going to push him. I'm just going to just keep exposing him to the water. Just keep exposing him to the water. And then probably one of the last times we went to the water last year, he got in up to his like ankles. And then, you know, then you see him like in the video, like totally playing in it and getting in it and having fun in it. You know, he's wearing snow, uh, snow boots because he's scared still, but, like, but like, it's, it's like a, you know, a dance between the parent and the child to some extent of like, you know, let's just expose them, expose them, expose them and get them used to it and get them feeling safe to it and just keep that path, you know? And, and it's not like, and so I think sometimes people think, oh, it's not working. Well, how often and how safe have they been when you've exposed them to this opportunity to learn? You know, that's the question I like often ask, like, are you, you know, did they feel pressure from you? Do they feel like they're a failure if they're not doing what you asked or have anticipation for them to do? You know, it's, it's, it's a more complicated process to, to invite this type of learning, but the outcome, like you said, is amazing. <laughs> they learn without you telling them anything. <laughs> yeah. And they have to go at their own, their own rate, what works for them. As you were talking, I was thinking about my oldest daughter again, who, um, when she was quite little, we, we got our first swing set for the children. And um, she and her, that my second oldest, they're both girls, and they're such total different personalities. Um, God let me learn right away how different two children are going to be in physically and you know everything um so alicia just um i remember being so excited and being excited for her so i'm like we got a swing set it's so cool and i stuck her on the swing and i pulled her back and i pushed her and she freaked out absolutely freaked out started crying i'm like oh i'm so sorry <laughs> you know i was i was so excited for her to just dive right into the river <laughs> you know and um so I thought, oh my gosh, she's probably never going to want to get on that swing set again. Well, the next day she went outside and she kind of walked around the swing set. I watched her from the front window and she walked around and walked around and then she sat in the swing. And I thought, I wonder if she wants me to come out and push her. <laughs> Don't we do that? We're like, let's just push them. We'll just push them in the river and <laughs> make them learn, you know. And so I started to walk out and she got off the swing when she saw me. She walked back in the house. The next day she did the same thing. She went out to the swing set. This was her new swing set, right? So she she knew it's like, this is supposed to be fun, but I'm not sure about it. So she went out and I watched her from the front window again. And she goes out and she walks around the swing set a few times. And then she sits down in one of the swings and she she puts her feet on the ground and she slowly just starts sort of moving back and forth, but she did not take her feet off the ground. I mean, she was barely moving. And this went on for several days until finally she would sort of let her feet come off the ground and she'd swing a little bit. Finally, to where, you know, she got to the point where she loved swinging and she learned how to pump her legs so that she could keep herself going. And um, I mean, they're, they're all different, but if we decide that we're just gonna push them, then a lot of times we can actually turn them off. I'm, I'm really glad that I didn't turn her off to the swing. 
and then and then there's you know my second oldest who just she was like she was quite a bit younger and she just wanted to climb up, up to the top of the swing set and climb across the top of the swing and I mean that was just her she'd freak me out <laughs> and she'd be the one that's like I'm seven and I'm going to take calculus you know and she actually <laughs> did stuff like that you know so we have to really go with the flow and be careful what we what we as parents do. Um, I have one kind of funny story about my second oldest because she's the one that's like she's she she wants to do everything right. And I had a doll. Notice the word had, and it was um, it was a Madame Alexander doll. It was Alice in Wonderland that my father had given me for Christmas, and I kept it up on this shelf in our home, and. My second oldest, um, Arie, she would see that doll. And one day she came to me and she said, can I have that doll, mom? I thought that was kind of bold of her to just ask for my doll, you know. <laughs> but I, I thought, what can I do? Because I don't really want to just give it to her. I didn't feel like she was young, old enough to really appreciate how to take care of that doll. I mean, I'd seen what she did to her Barbie doll. The first day she got it, she cut all the hair off, you know. <laughs> And then told me that that's why she wanted it. You know, she wanted in that in that week, she she that was her like, I want to be a beautician face. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I, I thought I'm going to think of the most far fetched goal for her, for her to earn this doll. And so I said, you know what, Ari, if when you can read the actual original Alice in Wonderland, then all the way through, then you can have the doll. And I'm thinking years down the road. <laughs> well, I was in for a big surprise. Because she went and she got that book and she'd sit and she'd read it. And I thought she's faking it. I mean, she could read, but she hadn't read anything like that. If you've ever read, you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever actually read Alice in Wonderland or Through the Looking Glass, it is not easy reading. Plus, you know, I mean, we've got sentences that are two pages long with words that the guy made up himself you know I mean they're not even like dictionaries. well I don't know <laughs> slithy toes what's that anyway so <laughs> so she's reading this and then she comes to me one day and she hands me the book and she says I finished it can I have the doll and so I thought I'm going to test her because there's no way on the face of this earth that she read that book and understood it you know, so we had a little book discussion of our own. <laughs> and I asked her questions, you know, and she'd answer the question and then she would proceed to explain to me how the book was different than the movie, the Alice in Wonderland movie. Yeah. Totally. I was totally floored. And what could I do? I had to give her the doll, you know, made me sad, but I had to give her the doll. <laughs> I hope that she's taken good care of it. <laughs> well, does, it still, does it still I, have its hair? I think so. <laughs> I need to ask her about that. It's amazing what will happen when we challenge the kids. You know, like sometimes we think we've set these challenges. And I often think that like a lot of the projects do that. They put this up like insanely difficult challenge to these kids. And yeah. and, and so we write the constitution. You can do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Memorize the Declaration of Independence. Doesn't matter. You can barely read. Like, <laughs> you know, we, we put these and then it's just like 
it's amazing how far they will like go to do it. You know, like I'm just thinking about we just we just did our first play this last year and several of these students, you know, they couldn't even like have a conversation with me and look me in the eyes at the beginning of the year. And I'm like, get on stage and say 100 year, 400 year old English words. And yeah, let's see how that goes. Like, <laughs> and they, you know, they do it and they blow your mind away. And you're just like, I can't believe that you can do this. And, and so it's like, it, that's another thing I just love about all the projects is it's like, let's set the bar really high. And then let's just try to jump as high as we can yeah. and see what happens. I you love know? it. It's almost like a, you know, for my daughter, it was like a dare. It really was. <laughs> I was like, I dare you. I dare you to read this. Yeah, book. but like, um, oh, who was, was talking about like in the, you know, what's his name who wrote the book on like the hero's journey? Um, and it's um, all. Yeah, I know who you mean. I can't think of his name either. Yeah. I want yeah. to say Joseph something. Campbell? Yeah, Campbell, Joseph Campbell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, thank you. Anyways, you know how he, he talks about how that adolescence needs that sense of adventure that intense challenge of to conquer something like and and the problem is is that when adolescence isn't given that sense of adventure and challenge then they atrophy and lose a lot of their motivation so it's like i think a lot of the problem that happens with public school systems is that instead of the bar being like high the bar set to the lowest and then people the, the students then perform less than the lowest because what's the point like you're not even challenging me so why should i like strive to do to do my best because you don't care right yeah. and so i think that's like with each of the projects because the nature of project-based learning is this is a very lofty goal a very difficult thing within a short amount of time and in one semester time you know usually most of the projects are that you can accomplish this goal so let's just push ourselves really hard through this one one semester this 16 weeks right and and then you can see the, the kids just like growth exponentially like happen and what you go from like not thinking they can even write a sentence to writing you know full pages and the growth is just so cool to watch right you know when they're challenged that way yeah i th i think too the other side of that coin is allowing them to fail when they when they try these hard things i had a scholar in a pyramid class that he really did everything. There were some things that he was doing the bare minimum, but he was doing them. But there was one thing that he did not do. And when we got to his last one-on-one mentor meeting with me to you know, go through what has he accomplished and was he going to get his pyramid award? This was after first semester. Um, he just was lacking that one thing. And what that one thing was, was lecture notes. As much as I had encouraged them to make sure that they had something to write with and something to write on every time they were in class, he didn't take that seriously. And so, you know, when, when it got down to, he says, well, I don't, I don't have these. He says, so can I, can I do them? And I said, well, this is the last day of class. So there's not going to be any more lectures. <laughs> And, and he said, so what are you telling me? Are you telling me? And I'm going to say a word here I don't normally say, but this is what he said. He said, so you're telling me I'm screwed. And I said, well, um, you know, you can decide next semester to, you know, you can choose to, to do these things. And so 
I thought he's not going to, he's not going to take second semester because he kind of had some struggles along the way for a semester. So I thought I'm not going to see him in class. And he came to me at our awards night and he wasn't going to be getting his pyramid award. He did stand up with the class and he talked about the things that had, you know, had helped him and the ways he'd grown, but, but he didn't get to get his award. And he came to me at the end of awards night and he said, Miss Camille, I, I want to try to finish my pyramid award and do the certification next semester. Can I do that? And I mean, I don't know what other mentors do, but I felt like he wanted to complete something he started. And it wouldn't have been in the time frame that I had given for him to do, but he did that anyway. And, and also certified. So I was very, I was pleased with that and that he would want to do that. And I felt like he grew from failing. And if we don't, if we don't allow them to fail, if we set the bar too low, or we just let them slide under it and say, well, it was just one little thing. You know, you never took your lecture notes, so we'll just give you your award anyway then it has no, it means nothing, right? Yeah, that is, it is so transformational that um, allowing them to fail. And I have had um, parents and um, people who have not gone through Lemmy training who have a really hard time with that. I had uh, this, um, one woman who has since become a, a great friend, um, she accused me of setting them up for failure. And it was, it was something that we had to work through. And, you know, I had, I actually had her uh, listen to the classic call that is on the Lemmy Works, you know, podcast is called uh, the language of freedom. And it it's where Anility and Tiffany talk about that, importance of allowing them to fail and how much kids grow from it. But it, it is something that's so foreign to most people because I mean, everybody gets a, a trophy now, everybody. I mean, there are school systems who are saying the lowest grade you can get is a C you come in with a C you can't fail. They're making it so you can't fail. And it's like, Oh, that's so it's heartbreaking because they don't go for that, you know, the star, they don't aim for that. They're, and they're just, they don't even, because they, they aren't trying something that is uncomfortable. They, they don't grow. They don't get that growth and that transformational change that they can have if they are allowed to fail. It's just really sad. I also think that like, I don't know if this is across the board, but I feel like boys really need to fail. Like I know like girls, I mean, it's, it's not always across the board. There's always exception. But what I've discovered is that I think boys tend to be this more, I can get away with anything, be more cocky. Um, and like, I can like, you, I'm gonna test these boundaries and I'm gonna see where you're gonna land. And so I think like, you know, it, it's hard for, for a lot of um, women who tend to be more agreeable to be like, this is the line, this is the mark, you don't meet that mark, you don't, you don't meet that mark, 
you know? And I think also it's very important that as a mentor, you, from the very beginning, you say to them, so like, for example, this last year when I was teaching, I, I don't know, I was, I was just super stressed. I totally forgot about one of the 10 steps, which is like keeping their own, like on the side, turning in their own vocabulary, commonplace words. That's what it was. I completely forgot about that. I forgot to tell the kids about that. I forgot to like follow up on that. Right. So then for me to expect for them to do that would be absurd. Right. Because I didn't communicate that expectation. But Camille, you clearly communicated the expectation of the classes, what was supposed to be met from the beginning. And I think it's as a mentor, you clearly communicate that you clearly communicate that then when it comes to the time, then they don't do it. There's no like, there's no making it up, right? It's, it's just not going to happen. And I think that's super important for us as mentors to be like, no, this is the line. And it's also unfair for the kids who do do everything. Then they don't trust you because they're like, well, if I did everything and you're, you're going to let them get away with it, then what's the point of doing it? And you really lose credibility. You really do. Yeah. But it's painful. Yeah. So we have, you've, I've shared a couple of my pet, pet peeves. <laughs> um, Camille, we, what's one of, uh, we want to talk a little bit about, I guess maybe it might not be a pet peeve, but an insight that you've had about mentor reports. Oh, um, well, I will just share with you, I guess this kind of the highlights of my thinking. Of course, my first exposure to writing up mentor reports was the first time I was mentoring. And I didn't understand how to do it. Actually, it wasn't explained the same way as we explain it now. I was just told to tell us, tell kind of, I guess maybe, maybe it was explained. I mean, I was told, tell what you did to prepare for your class and then um, write about how the class went. And then if you have a question, you can ask. And at, and at that point in time, we were instructed to send our mentor reports via email to the person that actually trained us. So I'd send my reports to this gentleman and, and it was awesome. Um, they were like essays. I mean, I was so serious about doing them and it took a lot of time. And I, but the reason that I was doing it was not for the best reason. I really felt like it was, they're they're evaluating me like am I a good mentor are they going to fire me if I don't do this right and so that's why I was doing it. it was for all the wrong reasons although it did help me you know it helped me to see what was working and sometimes it was just like really good for me to have in writing like I did this and this was a great class and I did it really well you know but still I wasn't really doing it for the right reason and I wasn't getting out of it what I could have um, part of that was because I was spending way too long writing up the mentor report, you know. Um, it wasn't something that I was encouraged to do with my co-mentor. Um, I did have a co-mentor that first year, and it wasn't something we were encouraged to do together. Um, it was more the impression that I was given was that I was the primary mentor for the class, so it was my responsibility to send in this mentor report. And I started seeing it after I became a trainer for Pyramid Project, I started to see that there were a lot of mentors who had the same kind of feeling about a mentor report that I had in the beginning, that it, it, that it was like, I'm reporting to you about how well things went and hope that you will not fire me. 
from this job, you know, <laughs> this volunteer job that I'm doing <laughs> for no pay, you know. Um, so I started evaluating what it was about that. And as I saw that there were so few people, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I really think there are very few people who turn in mentor reports. So as I saw this happening, I was like, what is wrong with this picture? I really feel like some of it is just shifting the paradigm a little bit. And for me, I'm, I am a lover of words. I am a connoisseur of words and where they come from and what they mean. We create through our words. And I, I'm just gonna say, I don't care for the word report. I prefer the, actually using the skill that we teach our mentors to debrief. We're debriefing, we debrief with our scholars. We are gonna debrief with each other. So for me, I would love us to change the way we talk about this. So this is a mentor debrief. We're gonna debrief what happened today. Um, and we can still ask the same questions, but let's just put it in a nutshell. What I do to prepare? Well, I did all the reading that I needed to do. I don't need to write an essay about what I read, right? Um, and, you know, I gathered the materials that I needed. I don't need to give you an entire list of my materials. I just, I did what I needed to do to prepare for class. And, you know, if I were, if I were, um, getting a lecture ready for that day or a simulation, and I would be reading the material I needed for my lecture, you know, and so forth. And then, you know, how did things go? Did, did they go well? Or, you know, is there anything I would change or do differently next time? And just keep it really brief. In my mind, that's part of what the word debrief is. It needs to be brief. As far as this particular mentor thing is concerned, it should be brief. Um, I think that's been part of the problem because we have mentors who have put their heart and soul and so much energy for the entire week to come to class and teach. And then at the end of class, they're like, I'm done with that one. Now I'm, I've got to get ready for the next week. And that is just like another thing that they have to do. So if they can just take a few minutes with their co-mentor or even just themselves, if they're the only one mentoring the class and ask themselves those questions and do it in a, maybe a format that would be a little quicker. Um, if we can, like for me, I feel like texting and even just using that audio feature on text and just talk into the phone, you know, and just say, here's my, here's my mentor debrief. This is how it went. And this was kind of rough today. I had a little bit of a problem with this. I, you know, or my co-mentor and I are not in agreement about something. We're gonna try to work that out. Um, I do have a question about this or that and then call it good. And then send it to, I don't know if we're gonna have some particular person receiving those, but I think they also need to be acknowledged. Even if it's just, thank you for sending your report. Because in the past, I have been instructed just to tell my mentors in training, realize that you probably will not receive a response unless you have a question, you know? And so they've written up a report and they're never getting a response. Um, I think there needs to be something, even if it's automated, that says, thank you for sending in your, your mentor debrief. Yeah. Anyway, those I, are my thoughts. Yeah, Camille, I agree. And um, 
people are going to start getting a response. It's not going to be a, a fully detailed one unless they um, ask for ask a question. But yeah, they are going to get responses from now on. Awesome. So, also, yeah. I think it's insightful. I I've noticed that the mentors who um, are consistent with their mentor debriefs, they become Lemmy trainers. Like, I think that's why it's probably only 1%. Not that that's like a life goal you want to have, you know. Yeah. <laughs> what I've noticed is that um, it takes your level of mentoring to the next level. And I've also noticed that the people who, who I've had the opportunity to, who have consistently turned in their mentor reports to me, they do become like, like they, they become the next level of mentoring and they, they take it up a next level. And I, and I think it comes to the fact that it's like a constant self-evaluation. So it's a constant ability to, you know, slightly alter or change the ship. Right. So it's like, you know, when I ran this, this, this book discussion today, you know, it didn't go well. And then there's that one question you get to ask yourself, why, why didn't it go well? Right. Even though, you know, you don't necessarily have to answer that response. Like you still like, uh, you still think about it. Right. So you're, you're asking like, why didn't this happen? What could I have done better? Like, and it really does help you, um, navigate and learn the environments better and then also help you self-evaluate your own you know imperfections and things that you're doing really well too that's another thing i like because sometimes we can be like you know negativity bias but it's also like what are you like crushing in the class what are you doing really well like what's what's flowing well and yeah. so it's just a it's a beautiful thing to do that really takes so like yes if we take an hour it can probably not be worth it because it's too long. <laughs> like, yeah. But you know, 15, I, I actually, because I've never like had to, the projects that I've taught are projects that I've trained. So like I turned my report into myself. Like, so um, I haven't ever done it, but I have done it when I've taught it. I, I, I often will debrief with my husband and I'll be like, this is what happened this week. And this is what we did. Yeah. Sometimes so he gets- Some kind of a debrief, right? Yeah, because I know there's been a lot of times when like I didn't write out a debrief, but I was sitting with my with my call mentor right after class and we'd be talking about class and, and we'd ask each other, well, what do you feel like went well? Is there something that we can do better or they or we could bring up a problem, you know, to each other? And and that was that was just great for us. For me, even with the written debriefs, the uh, mentor debriefs, is that what we're going to call them now? Heidi? <laughs> Are we going to call them mentor debriefs? Please. about mentor debrief reports because okay. the okay. the email that they send them to is still <laughs> so funny that you bring up that word though because that's actually exactly how i explain it when i do training camille i actually just call them like you're gonna send a debrief in i'm we call it a report but <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's literally what how i explain it in trainings so i think it's funny that you bring it up because I, I do it naturally anyways yeah well, when I've done a written one where I feel like I have a question, so often by the time I got through with the debrief, I realized I already got the answer to my question. Not all the time, but but very often. And I think it helps. It just helped with my growth. And maybe that's what needed to happen the first year was for me to go just like way overboard and write these massive essays about what what happened in class but um it really it really helped me in so many ways to grow and i i think it it is an important
important thing, but I just think maybe we need to help them understand um, just to, to see it differently so that they're not turned off to it and and just don't do it. I mean, even if they weren't writing it, if if we knew they're, you know, they're gonna debrief in some ways, in some way with someone, even if it's just with themselves or with your husband or, you know, with your co-mentor, um, that experience that they had in class so that they can just keep making it better and better every time. I agree. I think that we've got to do something and there are some plans in the works to encourage people more to do them because I, I, I don't think people understand how much it can benefit people. And so, yeah, we're going to do. We that. need some testimonials. There Here's we go. Mentor debrief reports helped me. Okay. I will Speaking request of, testimonials. Um, Speaking of testimonials, Camille, if someone came to you and was like, hey, why should I pay like $500 to come to this training and do this let me project and then do a volunteer job? <laughs> you know, like what if, if someone would come to you and was like and was on the fence about, you know, teaching pyramid class, like what would you tell them or like, you know, how would you tell them if the impact it's had on your life? What would you say to them? Well, on my life, I'm just going to say, it's my education too, my growth. People pay so much money for a weekend retreat to for self-improvement or something, or sometimes just for a one-day class. And you want the fast track to growth and self-improvement, take a training and become a mentor. And you're going to get it. And it's going to be, it's not just the education. I mean, it's this you want spiritual education, you want a, an, an academic education, you want, you know, um, whatever, all of those things, you're going to get that. This is talk about growth, because you are, it's a crucible of growth. And you can put a price tag on that. I mean, in some ways, you could say you can't put a price tag on it, but it's definitely worth it. It has been for me. It's not just it's not only my scholars it's not only my children that have benefited it's been me and because I'm growing they're growing too and I will tell you that I have had not just the privilege of helping in this leadership education process for my own children but also my grandchildren and other people's children and other parents who need that help. So you wanna make an impact in the world, how much is that worth it to you? You wanna have a real education, you wanna grow more, how much is that worth to you? I love how you say it's like, you know, people pay thousands for a personal, you know, coach or like a life coach or like a transformational weekend and stuff. And and I, it's so true, like you, you you wouldn't think that like reading the merchant of venice with a bunch of 13 year olds would totally kill or change your mind but like this last year when i was reading that book like it was exactly what i needed to 
move through some very serious family pain that happened during COVID. Like it was exactly the personal help that I needed, right? Like, like it, it's amazing how these projects, because they are, you know, you are reading the classics, you're reading these timeless truths that have healed and have educated and enlightened and lifted for, for, you know, some, I mean, Shakespeare's 400 years old, but like, you know, for hundreds of years. And so as you engage trying to help younger minds immerse themselves into the classics, then you are op opening the doorway for, for you to, to be healed and to grow and to totally transform. And I just love how you put that, you know, it's like, <laughs> you want a self-help course? <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> you, you know, um, I, I've also trained uh, mentors for Georgics and, and I've mentored Georgics classes. And um, there's a woman, sweet friend of mine, wonderful friend, I know you guys know Angel, um, she's a true angel. Um, she was asked to to mentor Georgics, and she trained with me, um, but was so insecure about it. And she was going through a lot of huge life changes, um, what she called her existential crisis at the time. And so this felt like a huge thing to her. It was like, why are they asking me to do this? I'm I'm having such a hard time with my life right now why why would they expect me to to serve in this way but you should you should ask her the same question she will give you most impactful answers to how it impacted her um her life her growth and the growth of her children at that time training and mentoring a project and I watched her go from so insecure she's like well Camille if you'll do this with me um then you know I can probably do it and I said okay look we'll plan this together and I'll be there I'll be the little lifeguard at the pool but I'm going to let you kind of take most of it and then eventually she was just the whole thing like she did not need me to hold her hand I mean it was amazing to watch the transformation and what has the growth that that she had through that experience i'm sure she would tell you there's no amount of money you know yeah it's kind of like in you know when you're putting on a, a shakespeare play you're like literally praying okay which is the right part and i know in leadership of my community for years, that's what I would do. Who is the right person? And you just, when it comes to you, it's like, okay, yes, this is something that will bless them. They will bless all of their scholars. And it, it truly is that community that, you know, it's not just, it's not just the kids. It is, it is for the adults. I mean, the, mentoring is the project for the adults too it's um yeah i just love that that is awesome maybe we can get they, angel they, they pay yeah you should you should really um there i had this thought in my mind just the right words and, and it just left so that's okay <laughs> you can edit out that part right there <laughs>
Well, we've had you on here for more than an hour, so we just want to say thanks for coming on and inspiring us. And it's been so awesome to hear your journey and your insight. And we're so grateful for you to be willing to come on and share with us and and all that you've done to help Lemmy and help the the Pyramid Project grow. And it's been it's great, been awesome. You're welcome. It was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode. Just as in every Lemmy training. We hope you walk away uplifted and inspired, but also empowered to be a better mentor for your family and your community. Please be sure to subscribe and share. We also want to express our gratitude to all the Lemmy mentors, past and present. You got this. You can do hard things.